0: Welcome to the Inner Ray Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss how relationships are the most meaningful part of life. Join us every week to hear inspiring stories of people living through their inner ray. We invite you to find the radiant, authentic energy that lives inside you to make your life and relationships easier. Hello everyone.
1: Welcome to another week of the Inner Ray podcast. So today we are going to be explaining love addiction. Now this is a very controversial and very important topic to dive into which is why we want to explain it and where it comes from. So
0: I am Katie and it's so nice to be here with you all. And I am Erin, and I am equal parts nervous and excited to dive in to this topic today. So with that, I'll pass it back to you, Katie.
1: Oh, it feels like my heart is beating out of my chest right now. And when I feel into it, it actually really feels like love is like pounding on a drum in my heart, letting us know that love is here and it's holding us through this conversation, reminding us how sacred love is, which is why this is such an important topic, honestly. So I want to start with saying that talking about love addiction through a coaching lens is not my specialty, but don't worry because (laughs) it is Erin's. She has a lot of experience in the clinical world around this topic to start I'm going to take us into love by painting us a picture of how it's shaped us through the ages, because it's important to see the bigger picture patterns of what's going on here and how love addiction is even a thing. Before I dive into that, though, it's important to say one more thing, which is in this conversation, I have a responsibility to honor love, because when I hear love and addiction thrown next to each other. I get very confused. Something doesn't feel right inside of me, which is really part of the big why we're diving into this today. When we think about love through the ages, love has been painted with this excruciating passion. When we think about Ovid, he proclaimed, I can't live with or without you. And then this has showed up in the U2 song. In movies, there's a similar expression. So Brokeback Mountain, I wish I knew how to quit you. In everyday speech, we hear, I need you, I'm addicted to you. So we know firsthand when we're in love and you feel an overwhelmingly strong attraction to another person or to a thing, one that is persistent, urgent, and it's pretty impossible to ignore. And that high can be really addicting. So with that, like love can be thrilling, but it can also be harmful when our feelings of love are returned. It feels euphoric and other times love's pull or what is around love, what, what's intertwined with it can feel so strong that we might follow it to the point of hardship or personal ruin. And, and then when relationships come to an unwanted or a needed end, we feel extreme pain, grief, loss. We can become depressed or withdrawn. And so this phenomenon this including these cycles of ecstasy and despair, desperate longing or extreme, sometimes damaging thoughts or f- feelings that can follow from love's loss are similar to more con- conventional addictions like drugs, alcohol, gambling, etc. So with all of that, I'm curious, Aaron, what you think about this? How does it help people understand what we're diving into
0: today? Wow. What a phenomenal opener to this topic. Thank you, Katie. I always appreciate the heartfelt way in which you research and prepare for these episodes. This topic is very sticky for me. It's very important to me. I'm sure we'll get into it throughout the episode, but for many of you, you may be aware that I consider myself in recovery from this nebulous term, love addiction, that we are going to be unpacking and I'm going to be sharing why I don't actually use that term anymore for myself or with my clients. So this topic is just near and dear to my heart on so many different levels. I want to start by talking about love and the fact that our culture has really misappropriated this term because we've talked about on this podcast Before the map of consciousness, and love is one of the highest vibrations of emotion. And being in a very, very high vibrational state on the map of consciousness, love is not addictive. A lot of the ways that we talk about love in our culture are not correct. What people are referencing is everything that goes into the discomfort of the human experience of cultivating, maintaining, and allowing intimacy to organically form and also be removed from relationship dynamics. So when we talk about craving, when we talk about desire, when we talk about anxiety, when we talk about fear, longing, grief, guilt, shame, all of those things are natural human emotional states that come up when we're uncomfortable in relationship with another. And they inherently get housed in the term love because so often people have insecure attachment. And there's no shame in having insecure attachment. We've all over the last 10 or 15 years heard of trauma and recognized that we all have it one of the current definitions of trauma that i heard recently is that it's an experience that was anything less than nurturing so if we define trauma that way we all have trauma we all have attachment challenges and that is going to show up in our relationships and so if we take all of the emotions involved in having a romantic or really a friendship family relationship and we put that all on love, then love is going to be really confusing. But if we're able to separate out all of the various emotions and experiences and behaviors that go into being in relationship with each other, even when the relationships are loving, then we don't have to misappropriate the term love. So with that, I'm going to just hand it back over to Katie and hear what she has to say about all of this.
1: What I heard than what you just shared is a beautiful dive into the nuances involved with what I like to think is the most powerful feeling, vibration field in the world. We're talking about love at the beginning of how it's been painted. It's just really important to say society tells us that love lives outside of us. We're never taught how to cultivate love within ourselves. And that's an important thing to say when we think about this topic, because it's reinforcing this idea that the love is always going to be outside of yourselves and you're going to have to keep chasing it and chasing it and chasing it in order to feel it. So I just wanted to say that. And I also wanted to combine that with my question of, okay, so you're now at a point where your self-love is strong. You love yourself a lot. You've gone through this. You were labeled this. What was your journey? from being labeled a love addict, okay, you're chasing it outside yourself, to being like, no, I've got myself. Like I can nurture, sustain, and hold this love within myself and you know, be resourced in navigating that path.
0: In the spirit of time, I won't unpack every moment in my journey, but I will disclose that when I was about two years sober, I found myself in this toxic cycle with a person I was in a relationship with, and a sponsor at the time had referred me to Al-Anon meetings, which is where I started to understand codependency and how growing up with alcoholism impacted my ability to have boundaries, my understanding of what was safe and healthy. And while I was starting to understand all of that, another friend introduced me to and in her own loving way, labeled me a love addict. And I picked up the book, Facing Love Addiction. I read it and I don't know, probably 36 hours. I read it super fast because every single word in that book was like an awakening for me. If you've never heard of the book, Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody, I don't necessarily recommend that you read it, but I will say that it saved my life. Because at the time, and we can talk a little bit about the history here, love addiction as a term came about in the 80s. Um, codependency, love addiction, all of those things were, were starting to be talked about. And also for clarification, love addiction is classified as a specific form of codependency. So codependency is a much broader term where your okayness is determined by the okayness of a person or a thing outside of you. Love addiction is a specific specific flavor of codependency that is tied to the preoccupation with romantic love. And within that, there's definitely different flavors of love addiction. Either way, I was labeled a love addict. I read the book Facing Love Addiction, and I was having all of these awfuls. And I started to go to 12-step meetings that were specific to love addiction recovery. And what I found was I very quickly discovered what it is that I should no longer be doing. If you're a love addict, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. What was really painful about that after I got that initial like recognition, oh my gosh, this is what I'm doing. I'm not alone. This has a label. This is something that people do. I'm not crazy. I just have this thing. After the relief of that wore off, what I was left with was this hopelessness of feeling like, okay, so now I just have to restrict myself. Now I don't have the skill set to know how to be loving and to have relationships. And that led me into a chapter, about three, four-year chapter of what I know, understand is an avoidant crisis. And what was interesting about that is because I read Facing Love Addiction, because I read Attached, because I read a lot of these books, in some ways it seemed, and my clients had mirrored this back as well, that if I became avoidant, I would win. I talk about with some of my clients, somebody in avoidance might win the battles, but they don't win the war. And that's what that phase of recovery was like for me. Maybe I was winning the power dynamics in specific situations with people, but I was losing self-development. I was losing connection. I was losing going out and cultivating the life that I wanted because I was just avoiding intimacy. I was spreading myself too thin. I was working too much. I was in an eating disorder. I was doing all of these things to not feel because I'd been told that when I feel it's too much, when I love it's too much, when I do things, I overdo things. So I had self-corrected, over-corrected and gone into avoidance. Mm -hmm. Then what happened is I hit this depression and I started to get really good professional help. And on my journey of getting professional help, it, and I just want to be clear with you guys, this has taken years and I'm still very much on this journey. But ultimately, this led me to, wow, I really want to coach people and teach people that you can have secure relationships, no matter who you are, no matter what your parenting was like as a child, no matter what your story is, you can cultivate and develop secure attachment and have relationships and it doesn't have to be super complicated or super expensive. A lot of what I went out and did was I I cultivated and collected all of these data points on what secure attachment, what secure relationships look like. And that honestly was the birth of a lot of what is the High in the inner ray coaching curriculum. So I got lost in my story. Did I answer your question?
1: You did. Wow. There's so much that we can dive into from there. Before I ask a couple follow-up questions, I just want to say something that came to me as you were explaining this like overcorrection is on this journey, just to everybody listening, it's so normal to have that pendulum swing. When you're on one end of the pole, you're usually going to swing the other end because that's part of the journey of then establishing balance. And it's a beautiful thing because you had to experience the whole range, that full extreme For you to then know what balance feels like and then know how to teach from that place. I just think it's beautiful that you explained that balance. And in the avoidance that you uh, just shared with us, I heard a lot of the ways that it manifested in your life. So I'm curious if you can walk us down the pathway and share with all of us listening what some of the characteristics are of people who are labeled love addicts, one, individually, but two, how it also shows up in relationships?
0: Absolutely. Great question. It is important to name that there are a variety of flavors of love addictions. If you look up anxious attachment, a lot of what shows up under the characteristics of anxious attachment is similar to what somebody who gets. Told they are a love addict would look like. However, there are more nuances. For example, you could be someone who is more of a fantasy love addict. You may not actually have a relationship that you're in. You could be addicted to the idea of someone or the illusion of a relationship with someone. Then there are people who are considered torchbearers. They are holding out or waiting for someone. So I have a client, for example, in. He has a relationship where the other is a torchbearer. He's told her over and over again, we're just friends, I'm dating this other person. And she's actually in a relationship with him as a friend and she's not dating other people because she's holding out that someday he will come and love her. And if she's just a good enough friend and and a good enough person, he will come and be with her. So that's an example of the torchbearer. And I'm probably going to miss some of these. There's also the ambivalent attachment, which is more of the flavor of love addict that I was, which is that I was very come here, go away, on again, off again. I was often in situationships, I think is what they call it today. They didn't call it that when I was doing them, but I was in relationships with men who didn't want to label it as a relationship, but we were very much in a relationship. And I was also... Always keeping my options open, having other men on the hook, even though I was really addicted to this one person. So that's another flavor of love addiction, and I'm sure that there are more that I could go into. But it's just this idea of this preoccupation. There's obsessive thinking. um, It's hard to eat. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to get other stuff done. Usually, there's a severe avoidance and neglect in some really important areas of your life. Like for me, I would often stop doing my favorite activities. I would stop exercising and eating the way that I would normally exercise and eat. Often though, with love addiction and and with codependency, there is this outer facade that goes into it where sometimes people would be really surprised to know about this hidden life that you have of this obsessive relationship style. A lot of times I was very compartmentalized. For me, the person that I was on again, off again, I had different worlds and they were very separate from each other because the guy that I was in this dance with is not somebody I would have even brought around most of my friends. And at the time I was getting a PhD and working really hard and really successful in these other areas of my life. So that's another pretty common trait of a classic love addict is to have this outer facade. And that comes from the fact that most people who struggle with what is called love addiction have this unrealistic need for unconditional positive regard from everyone in their life. So there's often that core wound of not getting the love, nurturing, attention, and approval from or attunement from their primary caregivers. So that's what the classic love addiction looks like. And it can swing all the way over to, and I can describe a little bit about the love avoidance, which is just on the spectrum of love addiction. People that are more in that love avoidance or intimacy avoidance, they'll come in really strong and really hot. There's a lot of love bombing. There's a lot of romanticism. There's a lot of idealism going on. And then there is this distancing that starts to happen. And usually internally for the person going through that, whether you're the love addict, the love avoidant, or like me, where it was a mixture of both, you start to build a case against the person. You start to have these resentments that are festering. You start to convince yourself that all of the problems in your life are coming from the connection with that person. And so sometimes there can be verbal abuse, there can be Physical abuse that starts to happen in these dynamics, ultimately, the avoidant will slowly ghost in the relationship, and then the anxious or the the more love addict person and in the dynamic will just keep reaching and keep reaching and keep reaching, and then there's some kind of implosion. And then, when the anxious one or the the love addict person finally gives up because the avoidant has extinguished the behavior, then eventually. <laughs> the avoidant will come back around. I always say to my clients in this cycle, oh, don't worry, he or she will come back. They always come back. It's gonna be when you're happy and you've moved on or when you at least are trying to be happy and trying to move on once you have those clear boundaries, they always come back. So I hope that was clear because I bounced between all of them, but did I answer your question?
1: Very much answered the question. And I feel like I was just on a love addiction roller coaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is like what it's like yeah. the actual cycle that people go through. Like one of my old mentors, we called it the crazy train. Because totally. it literally, okay, all aboard. Yeah. Because, and it's not just crazy for the people in the relationship. It's also crazy for their friends, their family, their children, their parents, all of it. It's crazy making for anyone involved.
1: Wow. Okay. So you just painted us a picture of the surface level of how this expresses itself, how we see it manifest in the world today. Touched a little bit on that core wound. I want to take us there. So what are some of the underlying reasons that love addiction is a
0: thing? Where does it stem from? The simplest way to answer that, and I'll expand on it, is insecure attachment. When you have a childhood where you did not have the attunement, that's the most high level answer of where this comes from. In more severe cases, it's often when there's abuse, there's addiction present in one or more of the primary caregivers. Sometimes it can come from loss, like a parent dying of cancer. It can come from a sibling getting a lot of attention because they have an illness. I feel like there's probably more kind of core classical ways that it can manifest, but it's neglect, abandonment, um, abuse. If you have those in your first five years of life, you are primed and set up for attachment dysregulation, which I think is a, a better clinical term than love addiction personally. It doesn't sound as good on Instagram, but it's really what we're talking about is the inability to regulate secure attachment
1: mm, which comes back to self-love which i don't think in this episode today we're going to go into resources and ways to heal this within yourself because we're unpacking a lot right now but know that there's probably an episode coming about that if this is something that is uh, resonating with you and if you're hearing these things and you're like, yep, 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 yep. No, know that that's coming.
0: I wanted to also add that there are some classical ways that somebody might more identify with love addiction, more identify with love avoidance or more identify with the mixture. So if somebody has significant abandonment and neglect in their childhood, they're way more likely or predisposed to having that anxious attachment in romantic relationships or that classic love addiction. If somebody had a lot of enmeshment and engulfment, and like a helicopter parent really controlling, maybe a parent made you like a spouse because the other parent wasn't available for that, you are going to definitely have traits of love avoidance. And then if you had one of each parent type, or if you had one parent die and then another parent go into that enmeshment role, it's very likely you're going to have that come here, go away, the ambivalent attachment of both love addiction and love avoidance. And then also what I see is really people have both today. And I think a lot of that is because of the ways that technology has gotten in the way of parenting and how in general, even if you have a parent that maybe is engulfing, you're also gonna have a lot of neglect and abandonment even within that engulfment. So I don't usually see pure love addiction or pure love avoidance in anyone anymore.
1: Okay. That's it's very interesting because it's just taking me into, and I'm curious around I'm just hearing like some mischaracterizations, right? And you're you've been elaborating on that. So I'm curious if you want to dive into that a little bit more. So what are some of the
0: other ways in which love addiction is mischaracterized. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I see. I think, first of all, a lot of men actually have more of the traits of severe codependency, love addiction, anxious attachment. But Clinicians are often quick to label men as sex addicts or porn addicts, or men sometimes feel more comfortable being labeled as a sex addict or a porn addict because it feels like more masculine than it is to be like, Oh, I'm pining for someone. And for whatever reason, a lot of the early literature and the research was all on women who have love addiction. And I do think that tracks with the historical patriarchal nature of how families were raising kids 50, 100 years ago, right? So that kind of tracks because typically the dad was away working and the mom was at home potentially like engulfing or controlling the children. So that usually led to women having that father hunger and men having that like avoidance from women. So I I do understand where the gender role stuff came from. But I think first of all, we live in a more gender fluid society. And also, like I said, most people get both attachment wounds in childhood these days. So there is whenever I have a man that I'm working with who's got a lot of these traits and they're looking for literature and books on this, they get really discouraged because it's all written for women. And so they're like, is something wrong with me that I'm struggling with fantasy? Is something wrong with me that I have relationship addiction? Is something wrong with me that I can't get over these women after a break? But I'm like, no, nothing is wrong with you. The literature has not been updated to reflect what is actually happening within the general population. So that's probably my biggest thing that I see that is often mischaracterized in the current books and in our culture around this topic. What's coming up for me is
1: I've mentioned Gene Keys a lot on this podcast, but as you're talking about this, I'm hearing a lot of the shadows coming up and Richard Rudd does a really, really, really great job at painting us a picture of what is happening inside our inner world when there's a lot of desire, when there's this wrong feeling coming up, ooh, is there something wrong with me, when these insecurities start to come into play, and how feeling empty plays a role in all this. So if you're mm-hmm. hearing this and you don't want to go necessarily the clinical route reading about this, maybe spend a little bit of time researching gene keys and type in some of these phrases that have come up, and you might get some language that resonates with you and helps you Relate to this in a helpful and healthy way. So, with
0: that, Aaron, is there anything else that you want to unpack before we round this out? Yeah, I think even though we said we're not going to go into solution much in this episode, I do always like to leave people with hope. Mm -hmm. And what I will say is that if you're listening to this and you're like, oh shit, I think I might have this thing or I've been told I have this thing and I'm listening to this podcast. And I'm like, what the hell? They didn't give me any solution. First of all, there are some books out there that could be helpful. We have lots of episodes in this podcast that you can go back and listen to that have a lot of solution in them. And also we promise to release some episodes in the future with more solution in them. But the take home of what the solution is for me to in general for everyone who wants to develop secure attachment is that you have to figure out how to, first of all, live more balanced and more holistically, right? You have to get familiar with the parts of you that developed by understanding developmental psychology, working with a coach that's trained in that, a therapist that's trained in that, get familiar with the parts of you that you're uncomfortable with, get familiar with feeling and emotion. It's important to understand the mechanics of attachment, boundaries, how to develop and cultivate intimacy, how to have invitation in relationships. And it's important to grow and expand a spiritual life because without that, it can be really, really difficult to develop secure attachment with yourself, especially if you have a lot of trauma and you have a lot of attachment wounds. So just know there is a solution out there. I consider myself pretty much recovered from this disorder that I thought I had 10, 15 years ago. Do I still get anxious at times? Absolutely. Do I still feel the discomfort and avoidance come up in me when I am getting close to somebody? Definitely. Do I still struggle with conflict and having boundaries and being direct with people in my life? 100%. Am I still scared to date? And to meet new people, do I get social anxiety? Yes. However, what I have that I did not have then, and we promise you can have it too, is I have a secure relationship with myself and a higher power that I spend daily cultivating and growing and expanding. And to me, that really is the key. So if you're listening and you're not spiritual or you you don't really like the sound of that, don't worry. Because it can be nature, it can be community, it can be the vibration of love, which ultimately is why we have a challenge with mm-hmm. the term love addiction. Because I do think love is the antidote. Sorry, a-
1: just wanted to end with some hope. <laughs> Amen. Um, and yes, double click on all of those. The last thing I'll say before I, I lead us with our last question is, I think it's important from what you're saying, right? to just. Pay attention to this spectrum of motivation that we've been talking about on multiple different levels, on multiple different layers in this episode today. So, that spectrum of motivation emerges from the repeated doing of any type of thing. And with that comes a reward. And even when it comes back to nurturing that secure attachment with yourself, the more you do that, the more you're going to feel the reward, the more your brain, your body is going to want that. You're going to be drawn towards that. So, Just know that's a very natural and normal part of this journey. And it's not that something's wrong with you that you're not actually craving that security within yourself yet. It's just that's part of the rewiring process within ourselves. So just know that and have patience for yourself. Be gentle with yourself and meet yourself with a lot of compassion because those wounds get wound real deep, real tight. And everybody's heart deserves a soft place to land
0: as we dive into these topics and get support pa- part of having gentleness with self is getting out of your own head alone mm-hmm. because it is so hard to be gentle with yourself if you've never heard gentle voices so mm-hmm. find people like the the thing that i tell people when they're trying to recover from this is if you're spending time with someone and you're feeling a lot of shame after that interaction they are not your people right now. It doesn't mean that they're bad. They either don't understand or they have not done the work themselves to combat the shame within them. So, if you are trying to recover from this and someone is shaming you, then don't spend time with them. Go find some people who understand, who can give you tools to motivate you to change, give you insight, help you with your blind spots, like we talked about in the last episode. But make sure that your community understands, which is why traveling all the way back to the very first thing I said about my journey, that's why things like 12-step can be so beautiful and wonderful and helpful is you can find a community that does resonate with your exact flavor of your problem. I just don't want you to stop there because there's so much more to recovering than finding a community that identifies with your problem and not everyone who you find in that community is gonna wanna grow and change. So it's just a balance. Love that. Alright, so as we round this sucker out, are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. This episode, I loved it, and it's it's been it's been a labor of love. So let's go.
1: Has been love, thank you for being here with us as we birthed this important topic into the world. Okay, Aaron. I'd love for you to name somebody in the public eye who's broadcasting their inner ray and inspiring you to live your most radiant, authentic life. It can be about this topic or not.
0: Yes, love it. So I am actually gonna change the person from what Katie and I talked about in our brainstorm. So sorry. I'm gonna pick Tosha Silver. So Tosha, the book that I've talked about mostly with her is called It's Not Your Money, which I promise you, this is all related to this topic. But the reason I'm picking Tosha is because most of her antidote throughout all of her work, whether it be about spiritual growth or relationship with money, is that love is the spiritual entity that we surrender to. So a lot of the prayers in her books start with Divine Beloved. And I just, from reading her books and immersing myself in her oracle cards and her daily readers and the prayer work that she offers and the meditations that she offers, I feel like her work is that anecdote of me connecting with love as a universal force, both within me and outside of me and has really been a deepening of that secure attachment with myself. I pick Tosha Silver.
1: I think that's a very, very good example. And it feels like a big hug to a, honestly, a pretty heavy topic. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it reminds me of some another resource that we should share with everybody, which is a course that NRA has. And it's called... Anatomy of Relationship, A Guide to Mastering Attachment. And it's a very, very, I would say very supportive resource and nurturing secure attachment. So I would definitely check that out.
0: Yes, absolutely. And speaking of, it's worth mentioning that our retreat that we've been talking about on the podcast, which is November 9th through the 13th on the Monterey Peninsula in Carmel-by-the-Sea, The whole premise of what we're gonna be focusing on in that retreat is helping the retreat participants cultivate secure attachment through sacred connection by building authenticity altars. So I don't know if we've mentioned that yet on the podcast, but I thought I would mention that here because like I said, ultimately my journey to healing from what I was originally told was love addiction has been all about cultivating understanding secure attachment and developing that sacred intimacy and connection with myself and with some form of divinity. So mm. with that, I promise we will have more episodes on this topic and on various ways to heal if you are in that love addiction, love avoidance cycle we will definitely be giving you more info soon. But thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you all for being here. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Our mission is to empower people to live their most radiant, authentic lives. If this sounds exciting to you, join our community. By subscribing to our podcast, joining our email newsletter, following us on social media, or sending us a message to find out more. We would love to hear from you. See you next week.